to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 117 for the first part of September 2014. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. Dr. Loftus is a distinguished professor at the University of California, Irvine. She holds faculty positions in the Department of Psychology and Social Behavior, the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society, and the School of Law. She has published 22 books and over 500 scientific articles via her research focus on the malleability of human memory. She's been recognized for her research with six honorary doctorates and election to several societies, including the National Academy of Sciences. She's also been an expert witness or consultant in hundreds of legal cases, including Michael Jackson, Martha Stewart, and the Hillside Strangler. With that very impressive bio, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for coming on, and I know that we don't have a huge amount of time, so let's, uh, get, let's get right to the meat of the matter. Could you start by explaining in broad terms what you found through your research about how malleable human memory actually is? Well, one of the things that uh, I've found along with my collaborators, um, students and other uh, collaborators, is that memory is malleable. It doesn't work like, you know, some recording device uh, that you can, you know, faithfully record and play back later. Uh, the process is much more complex. And we have found and done hundreds of experiments showing that you can distort people's memories for the details of experiences that they actually have had, but you can also plant entirely false memories into the minds of people for, for experiences that, that they never had. To what extent? Like, could you effectively implant a memory that, uh, say, they were kidnapped and when that never happened? I mean, that seems like something that's pretty significant. Can you actually implant something like that? Well, no, we haven't pl uh, planted exactly that memory, but I and other researchers have planted um, pretty upsetting memories, things that, I, I mean, things that would have been upsetting to a person if they actually had happened. Um, like, well, the initial one was that you were lost in a shopping mall for an extended time and were frightened and crying and ultimately rescued. Uh, later, other investigators planted false memories that you were attacked by a vicious animal, uh, that you had a serious indoor accident, that you nearly drowned and had to be rescued by a lifeguard. So these are, these are some pretty uh, upsetting uh, events if they actually had happened to the person. And they've been planted in the minds of research subjects um, you know, over the last few years that we, that we all have been engaged in this line of work. And to a similar extent, um, how much can you change a memory that's already in there? I mean, so for example, uh, for my parents' 40th wedding anniversary, I went back and tried to restore their photographs. And I figured, well, they're not really going to remember if that flower is red or yellow, and I can't tell in this photo, so I'm going to... You know, decide by myself. I mean, something like that, it seems like you can easily manipulate, but how significant can you change a memory that's already uh, already recorded, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, and how certain is the person that it's not been manipulated, uh, if you've done research like that? 
Well, you, you can you can change memory for the details of events. Uh, that, uh, change details that were once stored in a person's memory, and often they won't know that they're being subjected to this suggestive influence, and that they don't notice it, they don't detect it. Uh, they they go with the suggestion, and this this then essentially be, becomes their their memory. And it, it's interesting that you um, you mentioned photographs because there are a number of studies now that have used doctored photographs as a way of planting false memories. So one research group, this was done in the in uh, New Zealand, um, doctored photographs and and uh, you know, put a little childhood photo of Stewart into a hot air balloon ride mm -hmm. where he's supposedly taking this ride along with his father, who's also in the doctored photo. And uh, uh, after, you know, studying these these photos, lots and lots of people start to think they remember actually going up in the hot air balloon ride. And does this vary with people who think that they have much better memory than others? Uh, I remember you, you discussed something about this these people who thought that they had much better recall than other people, like they'd been on CNN or something about it. Uh, I think you mentioned that in your TAM talk. I, well, I, I, you got it. You're close. You're close. Okay. And you got the gist of it. But uh, we did... Uh, uh, in 2013, published a study, I and another uh, graduate students in other research lab, um, looking at memory distortion in a group of people who do have superior autobiographical memories. I mean, they can, they can remember just about everything they were doing every day of their adult life. They're quite extraordinary, and they've been featured on 60 Minutes studied extensively by colleagues of mine at the University of California, Irvine. And uh, with this uh, joint research group, um, they were subjected to a number of false memory experiments to see whether they would be immune to these kinds of influences. And the basic finding is they were just as susceptible to memory distortion, uh, to deliberate attempts to distort their memory uh, as as control subjects were. So moving on from that basic uh, basic theory or basic, I guess, practicality, what has your work led you to conclude about eyewitness testimony by the layperson, by, say, a person who observes a car accident or something like that, or perhaps more uh, serious in terms of court cases and how they testify? How reliable is that kind of testimony? Well, you know, one analogy that I like, I, I can't remember who first used it, but uh, is to think about eyewitness testimony as kind of trace evidence. Um, you know, just like a piece of, 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 of fingerprint is left at the scene or a piece of DNA is left at the scene. Um, so after the crime or accident is over, a kind of memory is left. It's like trace evidence. And it has to be cared for. It has. To, it, it can't be tampered with. It can't be contaminated, or it's not going to be uh, useful anymore. And so, while memory can serve us very well, if if it's handled properly, uh, when it's not, it can become contaminated, and 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 many tragedies can flow from that. I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter very much the, the everyday small mistakes that we make in life. But sometimes small mistakes can make a really big difference in an important legal case where someone's liberty is at stake. 
And does that vary with uh, so-called trained observers, like our police officers or military personnel or, or pilots, for example, just as susceptible to, uh, I guess, uh, the foibles of uh, how you need to, I guess, you said take care of that trace evidence? Are they just as susceptible to being inaccurate as, uh, as another random person? Well, one of the things about, you know, training is... Um, it teaches you to notice certain things that, that maybe you and I would miss. So training can teach you to kind of notice a clean license plate on an otherwise dirty car, something that, uh, you know, a non-trained person uh, wouldn't think much about and, and wouldn't notice. But, you know, when it comes to identifying the faces of strangers or um, resisting contamination or suggestion, um, the trained uh, individuals uh, don't seem to be any more resistant than, than ordinary people. Okay, so um, this podcast is, is called the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast, and so the main implication for your work with respect to the podcast is UFO reports, and I was wondering if you've actually studied UFO eyewitnesses in particular, or UFO type or related cases at all in your research? Well, I've certainly read a lot about them, and um, you know, I, I, you know, I think what you need to be careful about is uh, when you listen to somebody's account, just because they are telling you something with a lot of detail and with a lot of confidence and with a, even with a lot of emotion, doesn't mean it really happened that way. You really need to dig down deep and find out, you know, you know, how did this story come about? Uh, you know, are, were there certain visual illusions to begin with? Was there cross-witness contamination and discussion after the, the so-called sightings are, are, are over? Um, in some sense, you've got to get in there and find out how the sausage was made and not just eat the final product. And so fr uh, from your research, I'm curious if you think that the UFO phenomenon, and especially the, the quote-unquote eyewitness reports in particular, about UFOs are particularly more or less prone to uh, manipulation or if there's something about the way the reports are gathered that's uh, particularly, I guess, um, uh, bad or particularly promotes the kind of manipulation that you found in your research in other areas. Well, I, well I'm, I haven't studied this, uh, uh, you know, enough to, to really confidently respond, but I oh, imagine like in any domain, there are, uh, you know, good ways of interviewing people that are done by some individuals and poor ways uh, that are done by other individuals who might be just as well-meaning, but uh, might not even be aware of the kind of suggestion that is being communicated to people and, and in the process contaminating the information that's obtained. Could you give an example of that, um, maybe from your research, about how what would be a good way to interview versus a bad way to interview? Well, you certainly don't want to interview two people together where they can hear what each other is saying and so on. So separating witnesses and, and so they can't contaminate one another. You don't want to say to a witness, you know, Mrs. Jones said she saw this, now what do you think? Um, and, you know, that sounds pretty obvious, but, it, but people don't follow it. They, they will commit that mistake, even, even inadvertently, even, even 
you know, unaware of the potential for contamination that is present. And and so, so you know, those are those are just a few simple things that uh, you know that can be done. And, and then, of course, I'm not sure what we do about this, but when you have a high publicity event, mm-hmm. uh, something that gets a lot of media attention, and so you you now see witnesses being interviewed on television or even in the newspaper. Uh, and journalists describing what other witnesses have said, the potential for contamination is, is there. Are there more subtle ways of contaminating? Um, I, for example, I'm thinking, uh, like, say, uh, an interviewer says, so what did that brunette woman say to you? And it, the woman was actually blonde, but now because the interviewer said brunette, suddenly your memory has changed. Is that something that happens is that um oh yes i okay. mean and that we in fact we've done experiments that are kind of similar to that where there is a little misinformation sprinkled uh in 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 relative clauses in the in the questions that are being asked uh, you know did another car pass the red dotson when it was at the intersection uh with the stop sign when maybe there was really a yield sign there um, you can get people to start to remember stop signs that they didn't see. So y- you, you, you do have to worry about the fact that people doing interviews sometimes have hypotheses about what they think happened, and they can inadvertently communicate those hypotheses. Uh, they can inadvertently sprinkle little details into their question. And later on, when the, when the witness uh, regurgitates back those sprinkled details, the interviewer mistakenly thinks that uh, it was the respondent, the witness, who first came up with the idea, forgetting that it was the interviewer who actually first used the term. Hmm. Okay. Um, Actually, that's about all the questions that I had, because I know we uh, only had about 15 minutes or so, Uh, but I wanted to know if there was uh, anything else that you think might be relevant to this particular topic or a big part of your research into this, the memory manipulation that uh, you well, think we missed? I, I don't know whether it's, um, Stuart, it's worth, I guess if your 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 audience is particularly interested in kind of UFO stuff, there's, there's uh, you know, there, there's sort of sightings out there of things that maybe somebody interprets. Um, but there are even more extreme cases where people have memories of being abducted by aliens and taken mm-hmm. up into spaceships. And I, I don't know, you know, maybe your audience consists of more of the former than the latter, but that latter group is pretty interesting. How do they get that way? Yeah, well, so as in how do, um, how do they get to the point where they think they've been abducted? Or Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's actually why why I started off asking, you know, if uh, you could implant a memory of ki- of being kidnapped, for example. Oh, okay. Well, it's a little. Yeah, sub- <laughs> I mean, you know, I, so I have studied, uh, you know, jo- I've, I mean, not not studied the individuals, but I've certainly read, you know, like John Mack's book, uh, mm-hmm. which is you know full of stories of abductees, all of whom he hypnotized. So, how do you think then they got that way? Uh, I mean, do you think that they? Um, do, do you think that they there actually was something there, or do you think that perhaps the way that they were treated and the way the interviews were done manipulated the memory in, in a way to get them to that point? Or can you not really comment because it would have to be looked at at a case-by-case basis? 
if you believe that uh, you know little creatures are not taking people out of their beds, uh, beaming them up into spaceships, sexually experimenting on them, and then returning them to their beds on Earth, if you believe that these stories, you know, are are extremely unlikely. Um, then you might be curious, well, where could they have come from? Where could these stories have come from? Because some of these people are very earnest and they seem to genuinely believe it. Mm-hmm. And in many of the, the, you know, the case histories that uh, I've, I've read about, since I haven't, you know, actually, you know, interacted or done interviews with these individuals, it does appear as if they are, you know, being interviewed, often hypnosis is used, uh, being uh, interacting with someone who believes uh, that this uh, activity is is very possible and maybe much more common than others think, and they can communicate these beliefs, especially if you have a highly hypnotizable person. You hypnotize them, they're more suggestible, uh, and they can start to imagine and visualize, and uh, it, it then begins to become their memory. They're often then brought together with others and who have gone through a similar kind of experience and they can share their stories and reinforce the abduction belief. And this, this may be an answer to, if this didn't happen, you know, how do these memories, so-called memories, develop? I guess actually a good follow-up question would be, what would you recommend in terms of a best practices if someone thinks they saw a UFO or if they think they were abducted or, or whatever, if they have something to report, what would you recommend as a best practices for keeping the memory as original and perhaps, uh, quote-unquote, realistic as possible? Well, first, you, you know, you want to interview people as soon as possible after some event that memory is the freshest and there's um, and as more and more time passes, it's going to become more and more vulnerable to contamination. Ideally, you want to start by asking open-ended questions, the questions that are, you know, tell me what happened, but, but don't um, lead people and are not very specific. Sometimes you do have to follow up those open-ended questions with some more specific questions, but you try to ensure that they're not leading questions and that you're not um, inadvertently contaminating the person you're talking to. Okay. Uh, that, that sounds reasonable, but I can tell you that I've listened to so many people give UFO interviews, and uh, they, they do not follow that. You know, they, they start off by saying, how many lights in the sky did you see, as opposed to what happened? Right, right. Well, I, and, uh, you know, I see similar kinds of things in, in ordinary police interviews. Hmm. Um, with witnesses where uh, they will do something along the lines of, you know, uh, communicating some information and then saying, and now what, what do you think? <laughs> and that's, uh, that's not the way to go about it. So they almost tell you what to say and then they ask you to say it back. Yeah, even if they're not really aware that they're doing it. Okay, um... I think okay, that about well, covers it. So okay, well, good luck. Maybe you'll email me and tell me how to how to access you. Uh, sure. Yeah. Or, no, or, I'll I'll send you a link. Uh, it's it's pretty okay. pretty easy. Uh, and it's actually it's going to go up tomorrow. So righty. Okay. Well, good. All I'm right. glad we got to finally do this, Stuart. Take yeah. Care. Thank you. Um, because okay. I don't cover UFO topics a lot, and I thought that your talk at TAM was very very applicable. So 
Thanks for agreeing. Okay. All righty. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Thanks again to Dr. Loftus for coming on to talk about her research into memory. While her research applies to many different areas, I really tried to focus in on the primary application to topics related to this podcast, UFO sightings in particular. The vast majority, at least in quantity, of UFO evidence, or UFO equal alien evidence these days, comes from the so-called eyewitness reports. The common dismissal among deniers, and people who aren't as good skeptics as they should be, is that it's just some backwoods farmer making a claim about something he doesn't understand. So, the UFO equal aliens proponents will often turn to the eyewitness reports made by other people, touting the fact that the quote-unquote highly qualified and trained observers, such as pilots or police officers, military personnel, firefighters, politicians, uh, not sure if they're quite as believable, and even former President Jimmy Carter, although... Jimmy Carter says that's not really something he remembers based on an interview a few years ago, but anyway, they turn to these so-called trained observers and show that these trained observers have made all kinds of UFO reports. And so, the thinking goes, these trained observers have to be believed, or at least should be believed. That's why I asked Dr. Loftus to come on, for her research clearly shows that it doesn't matter how trained or untrained or how good your memory objectively really is. Everyone's memory is just as malleable as everybody else's, and it's very easily manipulated. Now, in the interest of fairness and in the spirit of true skepticism, that does not mean that the whole lights-in-the-sky phenomenon is false. I, myself, have seen stuff in the sky that I haven't been able to explain. But that doesn't mean that it was aliens. It just means I saw something that I couldn't immediately identify. It's a classic argument from ignorance to say that because I couldn't identify it, it must be aliens. It's also fallacious to say that the object or objects behaved in a way that no earthly craft, right there you're already assuming that it's a craft, could, because I don't know what it is. What if it's a toy quadcopter, which can easily make right-angle turns? I'm not saying that all UFO lights-in-the-sky reports are quadcopters, but actually, in an experience that I had, I later found out that the UFO I saw was a quadcopter. It turned into an IFO as soon as I was able to figure it out because it moved in front of a palm tree. But the whole purpose of this show is to examine the evidence for various claims, as in the show as in this podcast overall. How good is that evidence? Is it real? Is it reliable? My point in doing this episode is that these kinds of arguments of eyewitness testimony of lights in the sky being UFOs and those UFOs being aliens is horribly prone to the foibles of human memory. And therefore, it's not good evidence, no matter how credentialed or trained observery you think your witness is. Especially when that witness is asked leading questions, something as simple as, what did the brunette woman ask you can completely change your memory to make you think that the blonde woman you really saw was brunette, and the interviewer may have had the best of intentions. They just let their own biases interfere. Many of the UFO reports that I've seen or interviews I've heard, they start off by assuming that it was aliens, and the interviewer asks not only one person, but several people all in the same room. They ask them about the case, and they ask them how many lights they saw, was it triangular, as opposed to just simply, 
one at a time, individually, with no cross-contamination, tell me what you saw. I would suspect that you would probably get very different answers from asking, what did you see, of one person individually without any cross-contamination, as opposed to asking a group of people, were the lights you saw in a triangular formation? Just a guess that you'd probably get pretty different results. Now, I'm not saying that happens in all UFO reporting, but it definitely does happen. And all UFO reporting itself is, again, this subject eyewitness testimony. Not saying that these people are lying. I'm just saying that it's very prone to manipulation. And that's simply the nature of the fallibility and manipulability of human memory, as Dr. Loftus discussed and as she's done her research on for the last 30 years. That doesn't mean aliens don't exist, but it means that this, as a line of evidence for them, is dubious at best. By way of announcements in this episode, I wanted to explain my absence for the month of August to those who don't read the blog, Twitter account, or Facebook group. For those who do, you know. For those who don't, well, I'll just say I was very, very busy, unfortunately. Too busy to dedicate the time required to put out a semi-decent show, or at least a show at the level that you've come to expect. And unfortunately, I'm still very busy. Uh, I'm not sure how many episodes I'm going to be able to put out in September. At the end of September, I'm changing jobs, and so right now I'm finishing up two major projects, or attempting to finish them up, uh, while putting two others on hold and ramping up on a fifth, along with four NASA grant proposals due between now and the end of October. Unfortunately, as an unpaid gig, and no, don't offer donations, I plan to keep this as an unpaid gig, uh, this is one of my projects that has to be put on hold if time gets too tight. Sorry folks, that's just kind of the way it goes. But, if you thought that the podcast was stopping, that's definitely not the case. And while I may backdate episodes by a day or two, I'm not going to be backdating by months and never catching up, unlike some other podcasts do. So with that in mind, and me spending far too long on what should have simply been a sorry, busy, I'll leave you to the end matter as usual. That wraps up this topic for the 117th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little, or a lot, or at least something, at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the uh, feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, or on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can even tweet me, at pseudoastro, P-S-E-U-D-O, A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback and am, as always, perpetually behind in responding. If you have suggestions for topics, though, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review, rate the podcast on iTunes, your podcast, website, or service of choice. And if you liked it, tell people, because that's how this kind of stuff gets spread, usually by word of mouth. 